you have a Bible with you, you can open to the Song of Songs. We'll look at chapter 1 again, uh, verses 5 through 11 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, It's a difficult book for many of us. Um, I think maybe even for all of us, uh, to some degree, in some sense, it's uh, it's a difficult book for us to look at. Some uh, married people... um, are uncomfortable with the subject matter, some parents are uncomfortable with the subject matter, some single people, some divorced people uh, might think it's maybe just entirely irrelevant to them, uh, maybe, maybe more so it's a, it's a painful reminder for a lot of single people, maybe what um, uh, something they might long for, something that they're missing, um, something that they once had and no longer have, um, wrestling with all kinds of things there. Um, in, in one sense, just to all of us, maybe poetry just doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, we're so uh, far removed culturally. There's a, such a great distance to overcome culturally. It's hard to resonate with any of the metaphors that uh, arise in the text. It's, it's difficult for us to consider spiritually um, uh, or our spirituality in terms of the romance that's put forward here for us. It's, in a lot of ways, just foreign to our experience, right? It's hard for us. We've got to overcome something when we're coming to the Song of Songs to understand what it says and kind of try to integrate it uh, with our faith and into our lives. <clears throat> but very simply, we have to do that work. We have to commit ourselves to reading it. Uh, we have to do the hard work of understanding it simply because it's in the Bible, right? Just because it's in the Bible uh, means it deserves our attention, and it's something that we need to work through. Apparently, God thinks this stuff is amazing, Right? And uh, that we can learn something about him. That we can learn something about our relationship with him. And the way that we're to relate to each other through this song. Uh, It's a wisdom book. And it teaches us something that I I quoted last week. uh, Peter Lightheart, he calls it sexual wisdom. It's a wisdom song that teaches us a certain kind of wisdom. And it teaches us wisdom in a certain kind of way. And let me apologize if I was unclear about that last week. Um, it's, it's really hard to communicate, right? This, this is a hard book to, to figure out and talk about. And so when you hear the words sexual wisdom, it's understandable if I'm not uh, articulating it well enough. I, I don't mean sexual wisdom uh, by that. I don't mean just experience in bed, right? That's not what we're talking about. That's not what this book really is uh, ultimately about. Um, but um, because, because our human sexuality is greater than just that act, right? being uh, sexual beings, gendered beings, having our being, having our way of being persons um, uh, as male or female, created in God's image for relationships with each other and relationships with him, it means more than just the physical act of uh, marital sexual union, right? So sexual wisdom doesn't just mean experience in bed. It it means instead intimate personal knowledge of the other, someone who is different from us, right? Someone that we're celebrating. Personal, intimate knowledge, the way the Bible talks about knowledge, right? Real, real mutual, um, delighted self-gift. So this ultimately um, is, is not found. I mean, we, we have it to some degree. We reflect it to some degree in our relationships, in our marriages. But ultimately, it's characterized by a deep passion for God. It's participation in, <clears throat> in the intimate relationships, the very divine life of the Trinity, the triune God himself. Uh, the passion for God that is found in uh, participating in the divine life, union with Christ in the Spirit, that makes us ecstatically alive to God. Right? Um, and we're talking about being lost in Christ, 
and being found in Christ in such a way that we're ignited with his love so that we can walk through this world in celebration of his love, Um, in love with God in this world. And we're talking about close communion, transformational, joyful communion. The poetry of the song depicts this for us in the marriage union, which the Bible everywhere says is a picture. It's a great picture. It's one of those, the best pictures the Bible holds forth for us. Of, uh, of God's own relationship with his people. And so since this is the kind of God we have, the kind of God who would include this in the scriptures and says this is what wisdom really is characterized by and, um, and these are the terms that he gives us for understanding our relationship with him and the world that he placed us in, the world of our own relationships and, and marriages. Um, so this is the divine perspective on wisdom as God defines it. That's why it's here in the Bible. Since all of that is true, then we know, we can know that... Um, It'll have a good effect in our lives if we're open to it. So uh, last week, we talked about how the song sets forth our desire for Christ and our longing, our passion for Christ. And this week, we will talk about beautification. It's being made truly beautiful through our union with Christ. So uh, that's what we'll talk about. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, uh, we have already begun, begun to celebrate your perfect holiness and the sacrifice of your Son and the gift of your Spirit who unites us. We've already begun that, and we pray that we would continue in worship as we listen to your Word, that your Word would evoke worship and praise from us for the way that it is at work in our lives through your Holy Spirit who uses it to to transform us into the the likeness of Christ himself. We pray that your word would have this effect, that we would be transformed from the inside out, that we would know the true beauty that you see as you look at us in Christ, that we would be found in him, and so we would be secure in the beautification that he offers through the gospel. We pray that you would help us to see that and to uh, be changed by it. As we consider your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats, your young goats, beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our culture is, uh, is obsessed with image, self-image in particular, right? Our culture is just obsessed with it. Images themselves are everywhere, uh, airbrushed images of ideal beauty, right? The culture's ideal of uh, beauty anyway, from, from every possible angle, everywhere you look, images, images. 
um, that shape the way that we think about ourselves and shape the way that we think about uh, the way we think about the way others think about us, right? Uh, but even among those who will never be models posing for the camera, right, that those images come from, those, those photoshopped, airbrushed images of ideal beauty, even though most of us will never be that, uh, there is a compulsion to obsess over our own beauty. There's a compulsion there. We bend our lives around things like our physical attractiveness. We're the kind of people who, who do that. Um, we place mirrors everywhere. We place them in the gym to motivate us, right? Um, we're preoccupied with diet and exercise. We manage our identity, even just our physical appearance. We manage that through social media, right? You don't put bad pictures of yourself on Facebook, right? You control the way that other people think about you through the way that you manage your identity in social media. Um, to the point where these things, these, this obsession, this compulsion to obsess over our own beauty and our own self-image, uh, it interferes with our relationships because people don't really get to know us and we don't really, get, we don't really care about other people. We're just obsessing what they think about us. Um, we're, we're looking for self-esteem. We've been told that's what we're supposed to look for, self-esteem through self-image. Right? Self-esteem through self-image. And there's a move in our culture away from a certain definition of beauty, right? You see a lot of things um, these days where advertising, they're not, they're not picking that perfect-looking model anymore or whatever. They're, um, they're moving away from a certain definition of beauty, but it's just being replaced with another definition of beauty. We're going to find our self-esteem through a different kind of self-image. We're going to redefine uh, beauty for ourselves. Your appearance doesn't have to meet anyone's standards. Uh, really, it's, it's what's on the inside that counts, Inner beauty. Inner beauty. You can feel good about yourself if you're a beautiful person on the inside. Um, it still amounts to self-esteem through self-image. Right. Um, the Bible would agree with you that inner, inner beauty is important, but it probably disagrees with you on how to achieve that inner beauty. What that inner beauty really is. What really constitutes inner beauty. Uh, or why we would need that. Right? A sense of it. Um, because God knows we actually need someone to tell us that we're beautiful. We actually need, God knows this, and he's saying this right, right here in our text. He knows that we need someone to tell us that we are beautiful. Right? Um, in fact, not just someone. We need God himself to tell us that we are beautiful. Um, but the Bible makes it clear that because of sin, we're not beautiful in and of ourselves. Right? Who we are, the things that we've done, what goes on inside of us. We don't have the inner beauty that the Bible says uh, um, that we need. Um, and so the Bible's paradigm is not one of self-esteem through self-image. Right? You work hard enough, you fix this image, and then you can feel good about yourself because somebody thinks you're beautiful because of this, because of me. Right? Um, that's not the paradigm the Bible gives us. In fact, the Bible says that we're morally and spiritually repulsive. Those are hard words for people who actually need God to tell us that we are beautiful. Those are, those are really hard words to hear that the Bible says we are morally repulsive and, and spiritually unattractive. Regardless of how amazing our cheekbones might be and our lips and our muscles, right? Regardless of all of that, 
Um, there's nothing in us to commend us to God for him to say, you're beautiful, I love that, right? Um, and there's this big gaping hole inside of us that we're usually kind of aware of, uh, probably somewhere at least in the back of our minds. Uh, it's always at work. We're trying to fill, fill ourselves up with people's praises for our beauty, beauty of this kind or that, beauty as we define it, right? uh, self-esteem through self-image. That's what we're after. In desperation for praises, we try to make ourselves beautiful. We're worried and we're insecure that we might go our whole lives without that special someone falling head over heels in love with us because of our beauty and telling us about it, right? We're worried and we're insecure that that's never going to happen. We're in despair over our ugliness, whether it's over our actual physical appearance or our, um, our deeper moral ugliness, our spiritual ugliness, in despair ultimately over our worth in God's sight. That's what we're in despair over. Uh, and in one sense, we're absolutely right to be concerned because we're dark. That's the language that's used here in this text uh, where she says, um, I'm very dark. I'm very dark. Um, <clears throat> Self-esteem through self-image, that paradigm, that process, that way of finding security or the pleasure in hearing you are beautiful, that praise that we need from God, uh, pursuing it through the self-esteem through self-image path is like putting a Band-Aid on something that, um, that we use to cover a much deeper problem, one that we cannot heal on our own. Because the truth is we are dark. And that darkness goes all the way down. The woman in the song acknowledges her darkness. She confesses her darkness. She is sunburned. This is literally, literarily, uh, what she is um, talking about. She is sunburned from working outdoors. And in a culture uh, like ours, a tan is considered attractive. Like, you work on that so that you will be beautiful in other people's sight. You want your skin to be dark. Uh, but, um, but back then it was signified that you were, you were of the low class, working class. Right? Um, the honorable women, the beautiful women, they had fair skin. They protected themselves from the sun. They were inside doing things that ladies were supposed to do inside all the time, not working out in the fields. Right? Um, and so she's telling... The women who have that standard of beauty, she's telling uh, women in that culture, the daughters of Jerusalem, she calls them, um, and you get the idea that they're kind of well-off, maybe snooty, maybe they have that tendency. Um, She's telling them not to scorn her for her tan. That's real simple what she's saying. She's telling them, yeah, my skin is dark, Uh, don't scorn me for that. She senses that her physical appearance puts her on the fringe of society. Right? Society has these standards of beauty. She's feeling that she's not accepted because of those standards, and she's acknowledging those things for what they really are. She's not just trying to say, hey, dark is the new light. Right? Uh, she's not just trying to say, you just need new standards of beauty. You've got this standard of beauty, and you'll accept me on that, and, but you're not. You're rejecting me. Change your standard of beauty so that you, you accept me instead of rejecting me. She's not saying that. She's saying... I know I'm ugly. I know I'm ugly. 
and for more than just physical reasons, because she's got her sunburn uh, because she was being disciplined by her family. She got her sunburn for being disciplined by her family. My mother's sons were angry with me. And that's probably more than just saying they're cruel, they're abusive. We might interpret it that way now, but I think it was probably a part of their culture then, uh, especially if there weren't a father figure in the house, that the, the brothers would be the ones who would take discipline upon, upon themselves. The, her mother's sons. She's saying there's relational distance between them by not calling, her, uh, not calling them her brothers. Right? And she's saying that they were disciplining me. That's why I was working in the vineyards. Right? And that's why I have this suntan. She's just saying, I did something wrong. Right? I did something wrong and uh, ended up working in the fields for it. And the poetry might even give us a sense that it was for being unchaste. Right? Not, not exactly sure what it means that she didn't keep her vineyards, but that's kind of, it's, it comes across like a confession. I didn't keep my own vineyard. Right? Maybe that's uh, that she was unchaste and she was being punished for it by being sent out to work in the vineyards. Right? Uh, you can't keep your, your, your bodily, physical, sexual vineyard you're going to go keep our vineyards out there right? um, in the sun where you're going to become ugly as part of your discipline. Right? Um, so she's saying, I'm ugly. I'm not trying to recast beauty, you know, ugliness as real beauty. I'm not trying to shape those standards differently for our culture now. But she's just, I'm ugly because of my sin. I can't spin that away. It's true. I am very dark. Nevertheless, don't gaze at me for that. Don't stare at me for that. Don't stare at my ugliness. I am dark, but I'm lovely. I'm lovely. Not, let's pretend I'm not actually dark, uh, but both and. And a Christian doesn't live in denial of her sin. A Christian does not live in denial of her moral ugliness, her true guilt. Only a Christian is able to say something like this. I am very dark, but, and, at the same time, I am also lovely. I am guilty, but I am beloved. Um, Martin Luther put it this way, simul justus et peccator. Familiar phrase uh, in the Reformation, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. That's what a Christian believes about himself or herself. At the same time, I am righteous and a sinner. Simultaneously, I am both righteous and a sinner. Our sinfulness, our ugliness, our guilt, it absolutely would disqualify us from God's love, from ever hearing the words from God, you're beautiful, I love you. Our sin and our guilt would absolutely disqualify us if it weren't for the fact that he's a God who comes after people like us. He's a God who justifies sinners. He doesn't say, oh, it wasn't that bad. No, really, I like that kind of thing. Uh, you're not actually ugly. You're not actually guilty. Let's, let's reframe that. He says, no, you are guilty, and I love you anyway. And I'm coming after you with my love. And I'm going to purify you. And I'm going to forgive you and accept you and call you beautiful, even though you're not. Even though you're not. He considers us as beautiful, even when we're not, by his grace. He imputes the beauty of his own son, the righteous perfection of his own son, the thing that when he looks at his son, Jesus Christ, he delights 
and he's overwhelmed with the beauty of what he sees. He imputes that to us through faith as we are united to Christ through, through the Holy Spirit. As we become one with Christ, find ourselves in union with him, then God looks at us and he sees all the beauty, all the delightful beauty of his own son. And most magnificently, he has done this at the cross. Isaiah 53 uh, was a prophecy about this, and he says, says uh, about Christ that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So it's a beauty that we don't understand. It's a beauty that we don't recognize. But he had a divine beauty. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So his was a true divine beauty that we didn't recognize, but, but he took our ugliness and he took, um, he took the guilt that we deserve for our ugliness, our moral and spiritual ugliness, our sin. He took it upon himself and he suffered the rejection that we deserve, rejected by God and rejected by all humanity. No one's ever suffered rejection like this. He suffered the rejection that we deserve for being repulsive, for being morally and spiritually revolting. So that we would be accepted by God in him because of his absolute, infinite, righteous beauty. That's the beautification. That imputation process through our union with Christ, that is the beautification that we desperately need. And that's what's reflected in this song, in the woman's search, not just for some abstract beauty, but for her lover the one whom her soul loves. That's who she needs to find. You can detect the insecurity in her. You do sense that she has a need to know herself to be beautiful in spite of the fact that she's unattractive because of her sin. In spite of that, she's trying to convince the daughters of Jerusalem, don't, don't fixate on that. Don't focus on that. I know there's something wrong with me. Um, but she's, uh, she's trying to convince herself and others that even though she's dark, she's lovely, but she's tormented as by the heat of the noonday sun that she goes out and works in. She's tormented and won't rest until she's with the one whom her soul loves. Right. Resting in his presence as a sheep would rest with the good shepherd. Tell me, where are your sheep finding rest during the heat of the noonday sun? Because I want to be there. I don't want to be out with, with your companions. I don't want to be uh, in compromising situations elsewhere. I don't want to be with false gods. I don't want to be looking uh, to be called beautiful by other people. I want to be called beautiful by you, and I need your presence for that. I need to be in your presence. I need rest where you are. It's like the Samaritan woman that uh, Dave read about in our uh, gospel reading. Um, that, that whole section, starting at the end of uh, chapter 3 of John's Gospel, is really fascinating because at the end of chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist is celebrating the fact that Jesus has come into the world and he says, the bridegroom's here, right? Um, the bridegroom, the one that the bride is being prepared for, the one that the whole world is uh, focused on, um, the, the whole history of the universe, everything is coming to this point where the bridegroom comes into the world and uh, is, is uniting himself to his bride, taking his bride so that there's joy, there's real joy, there's real intimacy, and there's, re there's real salvation for the bride. In the presence of the bridegroom, that one comes, and he's walking on a hot day through a miserable part of uh, 
the country where nobody wants to go, and he meets the, the most miserable person that anybody would ever meet. It's a Samaritan. It's a woman. She's immoral. She's had lots of husbands, and she's living with a guy who's not her husband, right? And it's like her at the well at noon. She's not welcome uh, in the early hours where it's cool with the other women because she's an outcast, right? Uh, The daughters of the city uh, wouldn't accept her because of who she is because she's she's an ugly person, right? She's morally and spiritually repulsive. And so she's ashamed. She's unwelcome to draw water with the other women in the early hours. She's there at the well at the heat of day. She's rejected for her sexual immorality. She needs the living water that only Jesus, the Messiah, could offer her. And that's all of us. That's all of us. There's no such rest for your soul anywhere else. The rest that you really need can't be found anywhere else. There's no such declaration anywhere else that even though you are dark, yet you are lovely in his sight. There's no such assurance anywhere else that you are simul justus et peccator, right? simultaneously just and a sinner by God's own decree. Nowhere else are you going to find the comfort of that declaration of, of your beauty in spite of your lack of beauty. Gregory of Nyssa is one of the Cappadocian fathers um, in the ancient church. He said that when the Lord takes some dark soul to himself, he makes it beautiful by communion with himself. He makes it beautiful by communion with himself. So it's through our union, it's through our communion with the one whom our soul loves, it's through being with Jesus Christ and hearing his good word to us, and receiving his gift of his own spirit. It's through this that we are beautified, that we're glorified, that we're sanctified. Um, The man in the poem says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So maybe you don't think that's the most favorable comparison. You look like a horse. Woman, <laughs> right? Um, that probably just means, I mean, maybe we lack imag- imagination, but maybe we just haven't spent much time around horses, right? Uh, if you've been up close to a horse and uh, uh, you've stroked their sleek skin and you find they're majestic creatures, aren't they? They're graceful. They're powerful. They are confident, Christ beautifies us, he he glorifies us, he sanctifies his bride, his church, his people, Christians. He takes away our insecurities, replaces it with confidence. Um, He takes away our fears and our worries and he makes us beautiful. Not only does our beloved see us as beautiful, he makes us beautiful. It's not just something he says to us and declares to us and imputes to us, that beauty, uh, that praise that we, we need. It's not just that. He actually makes it happen and he changes us from the inside out. Not just by decree, but also in our lives. We are transformed. We are made beautiful. Right? We become increasingly beautiful, like our beloved himself, 
maybe in ways that the world doesn't easily recognize. Not according to the world's standards of beauty. The, the world might look at us in a lot of ways and reject us, um, but we are made beautiful like our beloved is beautiful, with a true beauty, a divine beauty. We don't, so we don't invest so much in superficial external beauty, you know, bending our lives around our physical appearances or um, getting caught up with eating disorders or, um, or obsessing with self-image or controlling our image through social media uh, for the sake of our self-esteem. Right? We can let those things fall away from us. We don't need that as Christians. We don't, need to, we don't need to live in order to impress others in any way, whether it's through our goodness or through our physical appearance or through our skills. Right? <clears throat> we don't need to live in order to hear acclamation because we have acclamation. We have the Savior telling us that we are most beautiful. Right? Like these, the... the the horses in, uh, in Pharaoh's stables were uh, world famous for being the, the, most, the most wonderful, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most glorious horses that you could find, right? Uh, and that's what our Savior tells us. You're most lovely. Most lovely. So, uh, so we don't invest in superficial beauties or beauty for the sake of acclamation. We invest in the adornment of the inner person through communion with God. Through our communion with God, that's how we invest in real beauty. And this is, uh, this is not just an individual thing. It's a corporate thing, right? At the end of that passage, <clears throat> you have these others who, boy, sometimes they're a foil. Sometimes you're not quite sure, are they on our side or are they against us? Uh, throughout this poem, they're, they're kind of mysterious, these others. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what to do with them all the time. But here it says, you know, we're going to help enhance your beauty. We're going to make ornaments of gold studded with silver for you. We're going to help you enhance your beauty. Right? Um, so it's a, it's a corporate thing. We remind ourselves and we remind one another in the church of God's great love for us, of the salvation that we find in Christ, the real union that we have with him, the communion that we can have that will transform us from the inside out. And we live out that union with him. Um, we live it out best when we love others um, in spite of their ugliness. Right? We reflect the communion that we find uh, in, in God's grace to us best when we love others who don't necessarily deserve love. Right? In spite of their ugliness. Maybe they're physically unattractive and they come into our church. Maybe they smell bad. Right? Uh, maybe we know they're pretty big sinners. Uh, in one way or another, we're never going to be exclusive of another, like these maybe these daughters of Jerusalem. We're never going to exclude others based on physical or moral uh, attractiveness or the lack thereof. Right? We're welcoming and we're gracious. We become like the beautiful one himself, the glorious and the holy one himself, as we grow in grace toward people who are not beautiful in and of themselves. As we pour out our lives for others who really need the beautification of the gospel, the beautification that the gospel offers. And so we do things like praise our spouses, even though we know plenty of ways in which 
our spouses don't deserve the praise that we give them, right? We praise them, and we praise them uh, not just for the things that we see in them that are good. You should be looking for those things. You should fixate on the beauty that's there, not on the ugliness. But, um, but we praise them in Christ. Right? And we give them the comfort that their soul longs for, that we know their soul longs for, that, that God considers them beautiful in Jesus Christ. Uh, we do evangelism because everybody around us needs the, the kind of beautification that the gospel offers. Right? Everybody around us really needs to hear God telling them they are beautiful, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of Jesus, the beautiful one. It is Christ-like to extol the beauty of the bride. It is Christ-like. It is actually like Christ. This is what Christ does with his bride. He extols her beauty. He cultivates her beauty. So we are like him when we don't fixate on all the ways in which the church is messed up, because there's lots of ways. And it's right there on, on the face of things, right? Uh, the church deserves um, condemnation in a lot of ways. Um, but we don't fixate on that. There are a lot of ways in which the church is still dark, but nevertheless, and also at the same time, lovely. Real complaints, uh, there are real complaints that people have about our moral ugliness. We're not trying to fool people about that. We are dark, but at the same time, we are lovely because of the Savior we have, right? Um, People shouldn't stare at us for our warts. We shouldn't spend all of our time looking at and... and, uh, and lingering over those warts as if they defined us, because they don't in God's sight. God defines us by his love as beautiful, even though we don't deserve it. That's what the church is like. So we can talk about that. We should call people's attention to Jesus Christ, the one whose kiss makes us beautiful. And that kind of beauty, as we we, um, uh, live in that, that communion with God that transforms us and makes us like Christ, who is... um, willing to see beauty where there's not necessarily any beauty, right? Um, that's the kind of beauty that doesn't disappear with age. Right? Most of the forms of beauty that this world understands, they fade with age. But this kind doesn't disappear with age. It, it has, uh, uh, like, it's the beauty of divine love. It ages well like fine wine. That's the kind of beauty we're after, and we should seek to live from a place of contentment with, with his beautification of us, his declaring us beautiful. We're content with that. We don't need to live to get something that we already have in him. Right? Even if we're unattractive in ourselves in every other way, he calls us beautiful. And when the king of the universe calls you beautiful, calls his bride most beautiful, it's enough to give us all the peace that we are so desperate for. So let's live in contentment of that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this uh, idea that, that in one sense, everything in this whole world is about beauty and we've lost it in and of ourselves. We are not beautiful in your sight. And yet, uh, in the face of everything that we think is uh, true, you've come into the world as the bridegroom coming for his bride And you've said that we are beautiful. You've repeated it over and over again. You are beautiful, my love. You are lovely. You are the most lovely. And um, we pray that you would help us to hear that, that you would help us...
to resonate with that at a deeper level so that we would change the way that we live in this world. We would live in celebration of your love given to us as a free gift of your grace. We would live in celebration of it and not uh, so much trying to get it, trying to cobble together an image so that we'll be accepted in your sight, so we'll be considered beautiful by others, or even so that we would have self-esteem. That way is death. Your way is life. And it is a beautiful life, and it's one we can enter into freely because of uh, your grace uh, through faith. So we pray that you would help our faith as we live in this world as those whom you have beautified. And you've called us beautiful, and you're making us beautiful by the work of your Spirit. We pray that you would help us to, um, to be content in that process, and more than content, that you would help us to delight in your words to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.